I think EdTech is changing fundamentally from a market selling to schools and then having 10,000 students join the next day to a, a market where we're integrating the world of work and the world of learning in a lot more meaningful ways. And because working with employers, we're working with with students directly, it's a lot more, dy more dynamic. Welcome back to Infinity Inc, where I talk to some of the world's brightest founders and thinkers about their bold visions for the future and the thinking that went into them, all in an easily digestible half an hour. We'll be focusing on ideas and companies that can have a transformative impact on the world, including everything from new school systems to seasteading. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Alberto Aranaza, co-founder of Transcend Network, a network supporting the builders of the future of learning and work. Alberto, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm a huge fan of everything you and Transcend put out into the world. If someone asked you, what do you do? Um, and you need to tell them in, in a couple of sentences, what would you say? Yeah, uh, well, first, first of all, thanks for, for inviting me well. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm currently one of the co-founders of Transcend Network, which is a basically the most global community of founders building the future of learning and work. What that means is we run fellowships for early stage founders who run startups in the education and future of work space. We connect them to one another, to operators and investors in the space. And, and yeah, I've been doing that for, for about a year now. I went full-time a few months ago. And we're growing that network pretty fast. We've had about 40 founders join this program since we started in January of, of this year. These are founders that have come from 15 plus countries. And, and obviously there's been a lot of momentum around remote programs. So we were lucky that we were running these programs remotely from, from the beginning. So yeah, I would say that's, that's what I do. I mostly just nerd out with other people around the future of education and the future of work. Yeah, and I was looking through the Transcend Fellows and it's it's really amazing the kind of the scope of individuals you guys have in the network and then the scope of ideas as well. You've got everything from Align, providing basically the Stripe Atlas for, for ISAs, you could call them, and then people even providing education via text messages. So like whole range of ideas and I can't wait to discuss them a bit later in the podcast but maybe first digging into your background, you started out in University of Glasgow and then you transferred to Minerva, Glasgow probably being more traditional and Minerva kind of a reimagining of higher education in some ways. For people who don't know, what is Minerva and how is it different to um, more traditional universities? Yeah, so I, I usually joke that I went from being a student at a 500-year-old university to being a student at a university that wasn't even five years old. So Minerva was started around 2012. It didn't take any students until 2014. But the, the whole idea was, uh, what, if you could redesign an Ivy League school for the 21st century, what would it look like? And obviously technology needs to be a, a part of that, that answer. So Minerva is a liberal arts school where all the instruction happens online. You, you live with your classmates, but all the instruction happens on, on a platform that they've built. It looks pretty similar to a Zoom, uh, a Zoom call with 15 students, and they built some more 
features for, for education specifically. And because you don't really need to be in a campus to be doing those classes, one, it's, it's much cheaper to actually attend a university. It's a fraction of the cost of an American university. It's affordable to people like me who I'm originally from Spain and I wouldn't, I, I, I hadn't even considered studying in the U.S. prior, mm. prior to that. But also you, you can be anywhere really. So Minerva sends their students to seven cities of the world and you move with, with your cohort of about 150 students. And the, the, I guess something else to add to that model is that it's all based on active learning. So on the pedagogy side, you're actually going into those online sessions where you're going to be discussing the concepts that you've learned prior to joining the class. Um, so you're just going to be discussing, debating, and and that discussion is facilitated by the professor. So it's you don't really have any lectures. It's all based on those discussions and, and those uh, debates. So I I heard about Minerva when I was at Glasgow. I was doing my first year of university there. And as I shared, I'm from Spain. I just happened to be in Glasgow. They had a very, very interesting scholarship system for, for European students in Scotland, which obviously has disappeared now with, with Brexit. But I was just very disappointed with my academic experience. I felt like it wasn't particularly interdisciplinary. It just felt like I was get going, specializing too early in content that wasn't particularly relevant to today. And when I heard about Minerva, there were, it just felt like it was, it was something that I was excited by. I, I was excited about the idea of being in the first graduating class. And so I joined something that was pretty much like a startup. Yeah. And obviously, we, we learned a lot by doing and by being the first cohort that was taking every single class we were doing, which in my mind was a very positive experience because now mm -hmm. I get to talk to founders that are building these similar experiences. And I, I really understand I have a lot of empathy for the first students. I have a lot of empathy for them as, as the educators and the administrators of those programs because I've, I've been in those trenches for, for four years. And overall, I think it's a model that the, the whole Minerva model, I, I think it's something that is bundling a lot of interesting aspects around more innovative education that a lot of organizations over the next 10 years, I think are going to take maybe one or two of those aspects of that complex model and build really interesting learning pathways based based on maybe just one or two aspects of, of the Minerva model. So I think it's still a little bit difficult to, to describe. I couldn't just tell you, oh, this is what Minerva is in, in 10 seconds. I have to kind of give you more background. So overall, I think it's a really exciting program. They now have two classes that have graduated and about 150 students per, per class. Yeah, it sounds amazing. I was looking at Minerva myself, just I was curious about it. So you had that experience. Was that what got you interested in ed tech in general and the future of education, seeing yeah. that being built? Totally. So I think, I think through those years, there were a lot of experiences that kind of shaped me into who I am now. But definitely, it, it was a kind of spark to, to what Princeton Network ended up being. I mean, I think there's multiple aspects. Um, I would say one was just being in all these different countries and meeting founders, activists, thinkers, uh, academics, who were just so so incredibly bright and so advanced in their thinking. And then graduating in San Francisco, which is where we did our first year, and just realizing that in the startup world as a whole, even though it's a very global 
movement, there's still a lot of biases against those people that will have an accent that will mm. that don't know how to maybe network in San Francisco with the investing elites. And I think I, it was just a very intuitive thing to me that there were a lot of founders specifically that needed to access those networks of power, but weren't in a physical location to do so, which is, yeah. I think, something that will become almost ridiculous to say in a few years because mm. it will matter less and less. You're, 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 you reached out to me on Twitter through Dublin and I'm in Spain. We Almost like the distance doesn't even matter anymore. Yeah. Uh, why does it matter so much in terms of social capital and, and networks, right? So that was definitely informed by my time at Minerva. And I would say another one was that I was just seeing a lot of these trends around the future of, of education and also around the future of work. I think I would say what, what we do is ed tech, but it doesn't fully fit into the ed tech category yeah. in that we barely work with companies that sell to schools that um, are K-12 products. We mostly work with companies that are at the intersection of the future of work and the future of education. So my, my thinking is usually, how can I take some trend that is happening around the future of work and use it almost like reverse engineer to find the the training and education solutions that will train millions of people for that future of work. So, so that's that's kind of our angle to to education. So you look at trends in the future of work, and then you reverse engineer those trends to see what will be needed in education. Obviously, a huge shift in the future of work and in everything really has just happened with COVID. And I was wondering. What are your thoughts, and you don't have to have to give all of them because obviously it's it's huge, but on COVID's impact on education, both in how it's kind of maybe in, enhanced the, the inequality between learners, which you wrote about before, and then in how it's going to change like the need for, for reskilling across a lot of industries with all those kind of jobless claims. I know that's yeah. a big question, but maybe if you want to take it, uh, <laughs> yeah. please. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge question that I guess I'll, I'll use it to plug the our newsletter because that's yeah that's probably one of the, the biggest questions I've been trying to answer in our newsletter, uh, which is the Transcend newsletter, so transcend.substack.com. But I guess one, one of the most recent newsletters was around that topic of inequality. So that's what comes comes to mind first. I think w- when a lot of us in, in Ireland, in Spain, and the US, uh, wherever we might be, think about the impact of COVID on education. A lot of us think about kids taking classes on Zoom, how difficult it's been from university to primary schools. That's actually not the reality of most countries in, in the world. If, if you look at the access to, like, to online learning through, through these uh, past few months, in high-income countries, that's been 80% of students that have been able to access some type of remote learning, most of them online learning, but a lot of it has been paper-based uh, learning or some sort of uh, communication between the students and the teachers. When you look at low-income countries, that is only 20%, and the overwhelming majority of that has been radio learning, TV learning, paper-based learning, which are less effective than than online of course they're they're just like a mass communication tool so one of the biggest things i've been thinking about is what this has meant for a lot of students and for a lot of countries as a whole 
has been six months of total inactivity. So this, there was actually the Brookings, uh, Brookings Institute in, in the US, um, in, in New York. They, they tried to estimate the impact of those six months of inactivity over our generation, right? The, the, the students that are in uh, university through primary school. And they came up with the fairly arbitrary number of $10 trillion uh, that it will cost our generation in terms of lifetime earnings lost. So actually it's been a lot of students that are, this has been the equivalent of losing half a year of schooling. They mm -hmm. forgot a lot of stuff. They, they're not learning stuff. And a lot of them are going to have to either repeat the year or join the next year without having the, the foundation for this year. So um, when you asked me about the impact of COVID on the education systems, my, my most recent idea is this aspect of inequality. And my own kind of thinking has been, how can we use non-traditional remote learning tools to reach those that 80% of students in low and middle income countries? One of the really interesting things that I found through this research was that even though I think it's 16% of students had access to uh, an online connection in low and middle income countries, sorry, worldwide, only about, I think it was 16 to 20% of students had access to uh, a computer and a connection. 97% of students had access to mobile networks. Yeah. So all of a sudden the, the idea of like text-based learning is a lot more interesting, right? And mm. could you use it to complement some of the radio lessons that the students are getting? Could we use it to, to maintain the relationship between the teacher and the student life? So there, there's a lot of things that I've been thinking in that space. Yeah. Um, but uh, obviously there's a thousand other ways we could slice this question, right? We could yeah. think about the employment um, aspect mm -hmm. of this. You mentioned a few of the slices there and I was wondering if we might dig into higher education. So there's been a, a so, lot of talk that COVID is, it was going on before, you know, with the student debt crisis in the US especially, mm -hmm. but now COVID has really prompted a, a wider discourse about this. And people are saying, you know, $60,000 for Zoom lectures, is that worth it? And we've now seen 20% of, of Harvard first year um, deferring, deferring for a year, taking a gap year. What impact do you think COVID will have on, on higher education? Yeah. Well, I think if we, if we talk about the U.S. specifically, yeah, again, there's a thousand ways of slicing this question, but one very clear, based just based on that twenty percent deferral number that you brought up, the the universities that have very established networks and very established brands are not going to have much of an issue because they can just pull they they can they can go deeper into the waitlist and still find students that are willing to pay and that that can pay and and can be great students in that network. Harvard and the Ivy Leagues are going to be just fine. Because at the end of the day, a lot of the people that are talking about how Harvard and, and the Ivy Leagues are dead, a lot of them have graduated from those institutions and benefited from uh, those networks. Um, so I, I'm actually not necessarily as bearish on the top universities. Where I think it's going to have a massive impact is on the tier two, well, tier three uh, universities in, in the U.S. where you're already seeing a lot of uh, school closures, uh, yeah. or I guess um, a lot of schools shutting down, specifically private universities, which is probably not a bad thing per se. A lot of them are going to try to reach into the wait list and then um, realize they can't, they, they can't open up the next year, uh, or they can't afford the operational costs or the academic infrastructure to, to do the next year. 
so it's going to be interesting. I think one of the one of the consequences that, in my mind, will start to play out over the next few months is, I think universities right now fulfill multiple, almost like jobs to be done for for yeah. students, right? So like governments generally have been excited about the idea of having a university in your city or in your region because it gives access to communities. They, they, they can access learning relatively easily. Other people go to university just to get a job and others go because they want to maybe transfer to another university. They want to start at a community college, then go to another university. I feel like those needs are going to start to separate. And I, I would expect that in maybe one or two years, we'll have was like different names for those institutions where in some universities it will be closer to Southern New Hampshire University or Western Governors where it's fully online it's more competency based you you can kind of like you can think of that experience as something that you can do part time while you're working and it basically curates different learning resources but there's not a strong social component to it Whereas there will be other universities that will very strongly position themselves to still take in the 18-year-old high school graduates that mm -hmm. want to have a social experience and also like find out their identity and find out their, yeah. I don't know, make lifelong friendships. And I feel like we'll have different names for those, for those institutions. Right now, it, it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting when you think about it, almost historically, that all these roles, all these needs are fulfilled by universities and they still represent one entity of higher education and i think it's particularly acute in in europe where there's still there's such a strong interest culturally in universities and and it's not as costly so f families don't have to make that much of an effort and you find that students have very different needs when they join a university so my my personal bet on this space is that you'll see a lot more partnerships but those partnerships will also almost like cluster uh, based on the needs that they're fulfilling for for the students so you'll see a lot of boot camps team up with with universities because those universities will be they have the distribution they have the brand and they can be almost like the the channel for all these boot camps and and different training providers to provide a very specific need and a very specific maybe training whereas others will be more focused on the social experience and mm. so that, that I think that's kind of how I, I try to think about that that specific impact of course yeah so as the university experience begins to be unbundled you'll see different institutions fulfilling different kind of aspects of of the experience yeah. and you mentioned partnerships there and one kind of type of partnership you were kicking around an idea about in one of your newsletters was corporate universities and partnerships between say um big companies like apple uh, google um, Amazon with big name universities as well. Is that something that you believe could happen as uh, Scott Galloway uh, predicts or what do you think about that? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. It's funny because as soon as I published this uh, newsletter, maybe about a month ago or two months ago, around whether big tech would get into higher education, Google announced that they were going to basically provide the certificates for, for oh, certain yeah. skills that they, they really needed, where they were completely bypassing universities. I, I don't think that there will be this concept of a corporate university. I do think that as Google, Facebook, Salesforce, all these very strong market leaders continue to add users to their products and continue to 
become more relevant within the world of work and all around the world, a lot of that will have to go into the curriculum of schools because at the end of the day, there's a lot of people who are learning about, I don't know, let's say philosophy or business management, and they're learning all these abstract concepts and then going into a company and just using Salesforce 80% of their of their first six months, right? So I almost see a model where everyone does two years of liberal arts type of uh, mm. learning. And then over the last two years or maybe the last year, then you actually learn how to do Facebook ads for growth marketing. I, I could totally see that in, in yeah. uh, big tech getting into the actual curriculum development or even marketing them and almost like putting them online. But I don't think they'll actually go out and buy a Harvard, which is what Scott Galloway proposed. I think that's kind of a ridiculous. I think he's just trying to be provocative. He's, he's good at that. He's good at that. He's, if you put your um, investor hat on, say, in the ed tech space, what are some of the opportunities or requests for startups that you would have? What do you want to see uh, built in the space? I'm really interested in in a few things. One is infrastructure or tools for this new wave of providers that are either complementing or substituting the role of universities. We see a lot of boot camps, we see a lot of online learning programs, and a lot of them are in the very early days. I think there, a lot of them are still using the kind of traditional MOOC model. And I think we're moving into a new wave of learning where there's a lot more community that's embedded into those learning programs. And I'm really interested in the tools that are more horizontal, so they're not necessarily a boot camp specifically, but they are servicing multiple of these programs in things regarding online learning management, online learning tools, community management, financing. Yeah, so as learning moves increasingly online, you want to find the people that are that are building the the picks and the shovels for the for the gold rush. I was actually talking to one such company or the fan, co-founder of, of one of those kind of companies yesterday. He was part of Transcend, Aditya yeah. from Questo. And they're essentially taking the full stack of everything that's needed to build an online community, run an online course and, and doing it for the creator. So all the creator has to focus on is just creating top quality educational content. I thought that was a really interesting idea. Yeah, precisely. I, th- I think... Aditya and Raj from, from Questo are two people that I was thinking about as I was giving this, this mm. answer. Yeah. So I'm excited for projects like Questo because they're, they're thinking about the next wave of, of learning, with, which is, I think, the, the, the simplest way to describe it in my mind is we've been designing courses for centuries where the only relationship is between the student and the professor. Usually it's just from the professor to the student. Now we're doing a little bit of kind of bi-directional work. And this is the first time we're getting the students to look to their sides and talk to their students as well and understand why those students are there in the first place and try to learn from them as, as they're going through the course. I think uh, there will be a Coursera for this type of learning that will be built in the next five years. I, I know that for a fact, but it's probably going to take some time until, yeah. until we get there. Till we get the killer app. And one kind of one other of your of your theses that is, you know, bigger, you wrote about this one again. It's it's bigger than the, the boot camp market, it's bigger than Airbnb's uh, market cap, is uh, corporate development and 
it's something that's largely untouched, uh, untapped by in in years by like technology. It's it's mostly done in person. And there's been very little innovation in that space. What are some yeah. good approaches that you've seen, and uh, what would you love to see in the future? Yeah. So I, I wrote about this in the newsletter as well recently. I was I was shocked when I I found out about the size of this market. Um, yeah. Basically, companies in the in the U.S. last year spent. Twenty-four billion dollars in in corporate training, which is training for leaders, for executives, basically managers, executive coaching programs with business schools. That that is a very small subsector of training, and that in itself is twenty-four billion. If you look at the whole training industry, that's almost three hundred fifty billion dollars. So there's a few things at play here. It's a heavily subsidized investment for companies. So companies have great investment, a great incentive to actually invest in their employees. There, there hasn't been any innovation for the last 20 years. And we're also at a point where because of COVID, because a lot of these kind of more traditional consultants are not able to take these executives to a hotel room and do kind of a three day training where they all get drunk and just like go back to work uh, the next, the next day. Because that's being disrupted, we're seeing a lot more innovation now on on the management training side that is fully online, that is more blended, where it's it's not just like, here's a consultant that's going to tell you about leadership. It's like, here's here's a consultant that's going to help you think about leadership. And here's like regular programming that you can consume in while you're working, right? And every week, yeah. uh, it obviously research has shown again and again that if you're introduced to a concept once and then you never actually apply it obviously you're not going to learn it very well yeah but if you're able to take that concept and embed it in little fragments of your daily life at work that all of a sudden that becomes a lot more exciting and a lot more more robust so in terms of some of these companies that are are growing that i'm excited about there's a company called strife in san francisco there's another one called Hone. There's Degreed, which I think all, all of these companies are are doing some of these aspects of yeah. trying to take this this more traditional approach to training and add add in more of a subscription model where you're kind of bundling more content, you're doing it more accessible uh, to all the to all the employees, and most importantly, you're you're having some sort of ROI. I think this is an industry where there's been a lot of money that was just thrown around because there was no oversight. Companies could just spend and then assume that the executives had learned. I think there's, there's an opportunity here to make it a little bit more, more equitable. Mm-hmm. And then there's I, one of the things that I said in that newsletter is that I think there's an opportunity for a very strong marketplace to, to kind of bring up the smaller consultants and the smaller providers that uh, might not have the strength to build a full-fledged startup, but could be a strong player within a bigger marketplace. So there's, there's companies like Guild Education that are well positioned to do this. There's a, there's a long list of of companies that I I listened to the newsletter, but I think it's a space that's just waiting to be disrupted. I think there's, there's a lot of um, opportunity there. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'd, I'd never really, uh, as you know, those kind of B2B ideas are, you know, you don't think about them as much as say, you know, selling courses to people because yeah. they're just not as glamorous. Uh, so that's, 
probably one of the reasons that it's, yeah. it's not as attractive to founders, but definitely one, a, a huge market and one worth going after. Um, speaking of huge markets, EdTech has traditionally been uh, a sector where a lot of investors would stay away or, or some investors would stay away because they don't believe it's, it's big enough to, to achieve kind of venture scale. Do you think that it's viable to build a, a venture scale kind of startup where you're, you're growing that fast or, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Cause um, some people would be, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't agree. Yeah. I think from a, from a higher level perspective, I think the way I think EdTech is changing fundamentally and it's going from a market of selling to schools, getting a product, selling it to a district or to a specific school, and then having 10,000 students join the next day to a, a market where we're integrating the world of work and the world of learning in a lot more meaningful ways. And because working with employers or working with, with students directly, it's a lot more, more dynamic. I think the, whole, the market as a whole is changing a lot. And I think that is a very appealing vision for, for venture, venture capital investors, because what you had to kind of the requirements to build a, a unicorn in the ed tech, in the old ed tech definition was you need to be a seasoned executive that knows kind of everyone in the space and knows how to network in, in these environments in schools and states discussions. And, and now it's a lot more lean, a lot more agile. So, Overall, I would say there's definitely a, a kind of a high level shift. So I was wondering if we might jump into a, a quick fire round, Alberto. That's it. Is that good? Um, so I'll, I'll name uh, a school or, or something in, in the ed tech world. And you can say if you're long or short on this and its, its future and maybe give, give a couple of, of words about why. Uh, so first up, we have uh, ISAs, income share agreements, for those uh, unfamiliar with the term. Yeah, I would say ISAs are long. I don't think ISAs are the solution to every problem in society, as some people <laughs> tend to think. But I think it, it definitely fulfills a role in the education to employment programs that otherwise would have a very high operational cost for, uh, they would have a very high upfront cost for the student. So generally I'm, I'm long. Yeah. And do you think like some people think that soon it'll, it'll become a competitive, say disadvantage if your program doesn't offer an ISA? I think it depends for if, if you're, if you're a bootcamp and you are promising very short term, but very intense training, I think it will absolutely be a disadvantage. But I think if you're a university, there's been ISAs at universities for, for years. And I think there's just not a ton of demand right now for them. I have my own kind of frameworks to think about what makes a good fit and what doesn't make a good fit for ISAs. And I think generally, if, if you're in a space where ISAs are a good fit, you absolutely have to offer them. But, yeah. but for a lot of players, I don't think that would be the case. So those kind of technical roles, short time to train, a, you know, easily accessible data about, about placement and roles and those kind of areas. Yeah. And definitely a must-have. Okay, so next up we have MOOCs, uh, long or short. I'm short, as you can yeah. probably expect from my my previous answer. I think online courses will will be around, and I think they'll just look very different from what they do now. 
boot camps uh, long or short? Long. I think there's there's a lot of spaces in the, in the economy generally that need faster faster training, and I think boot camps as a way to train those those people make a lot of sense. You can call them boot camps. You can call them last mile training. I think they will become a lot more common and a lot more diverse in their offerings and will be something that is maybe even universal at the like university's level where you complete maybe a few years of basic training around competencies that you're going to need in your life, learning how to learn, learning how to be with other people, how to communicate, all these soft skills. And then you'll move on to do a bootcamp that will teach you whatever you need to do to land the next job. And then you'll go back into a bunch of different boot camps through your lifetime. Yeah. Uh, having had that base and constantly refreshing that, that base of soft skills. And, and I think once you have that as a base, then you can access all these different training programs to, to upskill you into the next, the next role. Yeah. And um, yeah, and Career Karma recently kind of uh, launched a, a sales training arm. To, they, they were used, used to be focused on coding. So it's uh, interesting to see how, how boot camps can spread from, they've been very associated with tech and coding. And actually there's a, there's a lot more than, as you like to say, the truckers to coders narrative, you know, totally. accounts can do a lot more than that. Um, yeah. And sales is, sales is a perfect example. I think there's maybe two universities in the U S that offer sales as a, as a degree or as a module in Europe is it's even lower and in mm-hmm. most places, I've never seen a module within a university that is around customer support, around operations within a larger company about sales. And those are going to be, those are very, I call them very human roles. Those are company, those are jobs that are probably not going to get fully disrupted um, yeah. by technology. So it makes sense that we're focusing more resources on training people for, for those jobs. Exactly. Exactly. Harvard, long or short. And for Harvard, you can read kind of any Ivy League. Um, yeah, school. I think personally, I'm just short, but oh, okay. I think financially, I think they're just going to be, they're going to be fine. So if I had to make an investment decision, I would probably say long, but I don't know. There, there was a, an article that came out, I think last, last week that was shared by Cassidy from University Ventures. And it said that 40% of white students at Harvard were legacy students which is, I think, three times other ethnic group. So how can you sustain, a, in a democracy, how can you sustain something where inequalities are so deeply entrenched? I think it's, it's hard for me to even grasp. Yeah, so but personal issues aside, and, and I might share those as well, that financially they'll, they'll be okay and, and they'll survive. Um, based on I think so. I'd have to agree with you there. So next up, we have homeschooling. I think I'm actually going to be a little bit of a contrarian here. I'm not super long on homeschooling. I think homeschooling will always have a role within within societies, but it's probably the the subsector of education that I'm least interested in. Okay. Um, also, because I haven't seen um, many projects that do homeschooling or offer homeschooling in a way that addresses deep economic inequality. It's yeah. usually the students that are that have more means that end up kind of homeschooling. But if anyone has some kind of good resources or good arguments against what I just said, 
I'm always super open to hearing different perspectives. So coming up to the last few here, um, so GPT-3's role in the future of education. Yeah, this one, I haven't quite put my finger on it. I, I don't, yeah. I can't, can't quite tell you what it will be. I think in my mind right now, the, the impact is probably limited in that we still have to give GPT-3 those type of prompts, right? For it to become, to come up with very educated answers. But the potential is endless. I think in, in my mind, it's going to get us to, to think about what those very human jobs are. And, and yeah. this is what I was referring to earlier. Now that we see the power of machines, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to get automated real fast. And we we need to start thinking about as most populations around the world are aging, how do we train millions of people to be caretakers, to be coaches, to be therapists, to be teachers? Yeah. Um, those are roles that are so fundamentally human and that are still actually pretty expensive to, to provide. And I'm, I think this is just going to accelerate our transition towards human work and, and focusing on creating human work rather than doing like almost like the, take the lowest hanging fruit of like, yeah, I'll take this data processing role that pays, I don't know, pretty well. Yeah. Um, so I, I think hopefully should accelerate that process. That's an interesting, interesting take. Naval Ravikant says, you know, eventually um, the hard work will be done by machines and we'll all be having fun podcasting and, and, and entertaining each other, which, uh, which is a nice future to think about. But one I hadn't really thought about that impact. What I had seen was an interesting website called Learn From Anyone that a guy, McKay Wrigley, had, had come up with. And it's basically, you can, he's prompted it with, say, a load of Steve Jobs, text from Steve Jobs. And you can essentially, you know, ask Steve Jobs, how do I design a great product? Ask Elon Musk, how can I, how do I make rockets? And this GPT-3 will respond as if it was uh, Elon Musk talking, which is interesting. And you could imagine in the future, say, well, you know, combined with VR and audio that you could go into these immersive experiences and learning from these great people from the past and, and from the present. And it's kind of a utopian vision that like a lot of people have spoken about in the past, like Steve Jobs spoke about for the computer that you could, you could essentially learn from anyone. And I'll include the link to that speech in the show notes, but it's, it's something exciting to think about. And yeah, I don't know if we'll actually see it happen, but it could. You could yeah. imagine though, if we're talking about these online courses with these kind of um, edu creators who have their own personal brands, and they want to scale that to a lot of people throughout the world, you could imagine them prompting, instead of hiring a thousand teaching assistants, say this is a huge course, uh, you can imagine them prompting GPT-3 with, with some of their thoughts. And then the students could ask the GPT-3 questions and get a personal response from the AI version of the creator, something along those lines. We have LinkedIn, long, short, oh. indifferent. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say short. So I we wrote a newsletter a while ago on kind of the future of hiring from this platform's perspective. And my thinking then was LinkedIn will become the social network that you then use to log into 
a sector-specific or a vertical-specific hiring platform. I think long LinkedIn, in terms of the, the network effects of it as a social media platform, are huge. And I, I think they will probably stay around. But from a hiring perspective, which is the one that I'm, I'm really interested in right now, I'm just seeing very effective platforms that are popping up to help different sectors hire better. Interesting take. Um, Alberto, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on for this EdTech deep dive. And it's very interesting to see your, hear your thoughts um, around a load of ideas in the space. I look forward to seeing what you do with the Transcend Network uh, in the future. Already a, a lot of exciting companies coming out of it. So all the best. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Infinity Inc, where we talk to the brightest founders and builders building a future that we actually want to live in. Uh, it was a pleasure speaking with Alberto this weekend, and make sure to check back in uh, next weekend for another episode. All the best. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. <laughs>